This is Monday Morning QB, January 25th, 2021. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, why do cops always seem to get away with crimes against black civilians? With Trump gone, where do Republicans go from here? Will President Biden finally close the Guantanamo military prison? And we've got poems and memories of one of Major League Baseball's greatest ever. All that and more, stay with us. People around the world literally breathed a sigh of relief when Joe Biden was officially inaugurated as president on Wednesday. But for activists working for social justice and racial equality, there's no time to relax. They must organize to combat U.S. white supremacy in the policies, in the courts, and in the military. During Pacifica Radio's inauguration night analysis, Howard University professor Greg Carr and retired Army major Danny Sherson told Margaret Flowers and myself about how serious is the challenge to achieving progress in the society. As long as American myth-making and the idea of American exceptionalism occupies the center of our problem-solving kind of models, I think we're always going to run up against the problem because at the heart of American exceptionalism in many ways is whiteness, is settler colonialism. And so laying wreaths at Arlington, blood sacrifice, uh, repeating uh, the, the, the Pledge of Allegiance, wrapping all this stuff in red, white, and blue, in some ways can become an impediment when we still try to get at those things that Dr. King raised, which brought him full up against the model for the country, which is probably just going to be fundamentally renegotiated. Dr. Carr, you, you mentioned the question about attacking the white colonial state. When you bring up this kind of rhetoric uh, about white supremacy, that makes it impossible for the country to move together. What's your thought of, about eliminating that core condition as something in order to, I guess, reach out to the, the white conservatives who still being able to set the agenda? Well, well, Askia, I think about Dr. King saying that, you know, among other things, this so-called Great Society program basically died because of Vietnam. And I think about the fact that there's no, this isn't, you know, this isn't a nation as much as it is a state. It's a geographic destination. It's a thing that's kind of stitched together. But the, but the mythic element, again, this is why these rituals are so important in holding together this this enterprise, which is in many ways a criminal enterprise, the, the, these symbols kind of lead us to delusion. It's never been a nation. And the idea of unity or healing, of course, is absurd when you just look at the history. We know that. Now, that having been said, you know, what we've seen over these last four years was a windfall in many ways for the extreme white nationalist element of what is in many ways a white nationalist, you know, racial, racial capitalist society. And by I say windfall, you know, they didn't expect Trump to win, but they used him. Trump's a symptom. He's not the, the cause of this issue. But now they retreat back to what they were doing up until 2016, which is engaging in this rhetoric of, oh, it's not going to work. We have to work across the aisle. We have to meet each other. But they've got 220 more federal judges. And we don't even know the, 
the implications of that. We, we expect, of course, that they will continue to go back and sue about everything from a woman's right to choose to immigration policy to education to every even this mask um, mandate that the executive order went out today. All those things are going to be in federal court, and ultimately they'll be before judges that they have stocked over the last four years in this windfall. Now, finally, you know, it's a difficult thing to puzzle through because, again, we are facing a situation where we're trying to fight uh, against a system that has been created over the arc of now two and a half centuries, really more, but as a federal project. And so when we start talking about dismantling that, and this is this is a question I have, I think, for everybody, because, you know, how, how do we engage tactically in doing that when so many people in this country have been the victims of this propaganda? I think about black people, for example, uh, who know virtually nothing about uh, Venezuela about Juan Guaido is a joke in terms of what the what, what the Biden administration will do in terms of foreign policy. We know that, but how do we how do we engage in a process of consciousness raising? I guess this is one step. And then the other question I have very openly is when we look at, for example, the executive orders that were signed today that have already been signed. I mean, I talked about the mask uh, challenge, but of course, things like uh, DACA, for example, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline. For example, I mean, preventing workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, for example, ending the Muslim slash African ban. You know, these are not enough, certainly, but are they better than, are they more than rhetoric? And if so, how do we use those as points of entry with the other ones to kind of advance of this progressive, ultimately transformative agenda? Or do we, do we engage in another set of tactics? This is Margaret. Yes, it, Flowers. And what I'd like to do is, is move to um, Danny and ask a question, because earlier in the first portion of this program, Askia, you mentioned that I think that, that President Biden um, is avoiding talking about the elephant in the room, white supremacy. And Danny, you are a, a veteran, retired military. You operate in, in many circles, I'm sure, of you know, a spectrum of politics. Um, is it possible to really deal with the fundamental crises that we face in this country if we don't talk about white supremacy? Is that something that's going to alienate people so much that, that it's a taboo topic? What do you think? Well, there were some troubling signals, you know, during the last part of the campaign where there was talk that, you know, we can't, uh, we can't use certain language about, you know, abolish and defund police and, you know, just sort of classic, you know, press record Biden and establishment Democrat hedges. And, you know, one of the things that, that Abby hit on last time in her comments before the break was this idea that, you know, if, if we can't decouple the empire from just about everything else, and of course, underpinning the empire from the first was, you know, some notions of race uh, and caste and class uh, and the hyper-capitalism that is also involved. And so, you know, I think that it is very important uh, that we deal with white supremacy in an honest way. And that includes the violent paramilitary wing of it, which has uh, always been a part of our history, uh, realizing that it is a, an inextricably linked and, you know, vital portion 
of empire. And of course, what we know historically and conceptually is that empires come home and that they uh, are affected and that they, uh, you know, are influenced by what happens at home. And then they take that overseas with them, the baggage that comes, and then it boomerangs back. And so if we don't look at all of this uh, from a systemic and interconnected viewpoint, and that means, you know, domestic policy, foreign policy, racial, class policy, not as a one-off, not as bad apples where uh, a unity pledge can calm the whole thing. I mean, we are through the looking glass, Alice, and it is long past time where that's going to do, if it ever would have in the first place. I mean, are we to believe that there have been 42, 43, if not 45 out of 45 so far, bad apples, you know, running this imperial and in many cases, uh, largely forever, you know, white supremacist system. Uh, and from the veteran angle, which, you know, I think to some extent has been overplayed, uh, turned into a bit of a monolith, you know, veterans in some ways, when they show up at something like the Capitol riot, they're one of the only groups that, you know, just by dint of the fact that someone served even six months in the National Guard, that becomes their identity. Uh, that being said, it is important to realize that there have always been uh, serious uh, white supremacist paramilitary undertones uh, within the U.S. military and that the pipeline, really, from the military to the police and to the various security forces element uh, is something that we have to take a pretty hard look at. And I think, finally, that this idea of unity, this idea of, you know, how many times have we heard about all the, all the white males in our family that we have to reach out to and just bring them back into the democratic fold? Well, as mentioned earlier, I mean, that has been a delusion for quite some time now, you know, and that has been played out at the polls uh, and in the actions on our streets from time to time and over and over again. So I think that it's it's time for hard truths because, you know, the delusions haven't served us and they won't today. Retired Army Major Danny Sherson and Howard University Professor Greg Carr spoke with Margaret Flowers and myself on inauguration night. much of the country and the world. The emperor lost his clothes a long time ago. But supporters of Donald Trump still see the man and his politics as the saving grace of this country. And because those voters still comprise a majority of the Republican base, the GOP may be stuck relying on an increasingly extreme group of voters who will form an ever-shrinking portion of the electorate. So while the country may be rid of Trump, the GOP most certainly is not. What does that mean for the rest of us? Reporter Chris Banger Drowns has more. Stanley Greenberg is a polling advisor and author, most recently of RIP GOP, How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. He says that Democrats won in 2020 despite the GOP pulling out every last stop in attempting to suppress young voters and voters of color. This success in the face of overwhelming resistance bodes well. Joe Biden was elected president with a, with a big majority, both nationally and in the Electoral College. Uh, Demo, you know, Democrats did win control of you know, the Senate. It was like a slow motion uh, majority that they 
got, but it was nonetheless a majority in which they have control of the Congress, uh, as you know, as well as the ex executive branch. Um, and that happened under a system where everything was done to, to deny people the right to vote. It, it's hard to believe you could do more than what they did in Texas and Georgia and elsewhere um, to limit the voting, um, to break down the mail system. Um, so, we're, you know, so we watched an election under total federal control with Trump's judges um, that we were able to win. Uh, now, it's, it's going to be harder than it should be. You know, but I, you know, I just have to believe with control over the executive branch um, that we'll be in a better position to uh, get the to exercise democracy. It'll be it'll be more limited, you know, by their judges as as we've seen what they've done already. But that's the, what we operated under in this election, and so um, I'm not pessimistic. You know, I just know the odds are higher than they should be you know, because of uh, what Trump put in his place. In your RIP GOP book, you cite the 2012 election post-mortem conducted by the GOP, which suggested in short, a move away from racism and a focus on attracting immigrant voters and voters of color, which, which was promptly rejected by the party when they nominated Trump as their presidential candidate. And it seems like a similar call for uh, an election post-mortem is growing now. So would the message of, of a 2020 election post-mortem be any different from the 2012 post-mortem? And do you expect the party to, again, reject a shift back towards the political center? Uh, yes. No, no, they are, you know, they, are, they are in a battle to save America. This, this didn't end with this election. They believe they're in the middle of this battle. The odds are growing only uh, greater. You know, if you look at the actual election and who was eligible to vote uh, in 16, you know, and in 20, you know, the you know, percentage that were white non-college, you know, went down a point from 45 to 44. But if you look at the percentage of older voters, uh, you know, it went down eight points. Um, and they were able to offset that by Trump's, you know, populist, emotional racist campaign uh, that raised the turnout of white non-college voters uh, by seven points. So they had a kind of a slight decline of their overall eligibility in the population, eligible population, but he raised their role by increasing their turnout even greater than 2016 when it was already high, which was an, an amazing piece, but it depended on Trump um, and him making it a racist nationalist anti-establishment party. It, there's no turning back from that. You can't, you, you know, that is the party. And I think, you know, I think that's why you're going to, uh, you know, for the, for the near term, uh, you're gonna see Republicans mostly try to impact um, the Democratic party, um, uh, you know, to represent, you know, more of, you know, of their thinking. Uh, and so I, you know, I would not expect in the short term to see a lot of Republicans go back to the party because this is an unfinished battle for them. This is a this is a multicultural America uh, that accepts its diversity. They are battling against that new American majority, which keeps growing, and the millennial pop and young voters uh, increased their proportion of the electorate uh, and turned out in big numbers uh, in this election. And the millennials are the enemy for them. Um, they, they are the ones who are majority uh, voters of color, uh, the old values that they, uh, they scorn. And that, you know, that battle grows only more intense 
um, and this battle that took place in the presidential election got transferred immediately to the runoff election where they showed all their cards and they are just going to continue that battle into the governor's races uh, in, the, in the midterms, uh, you know, two years from now. Uh, I think they'll lose then. And the question then is if they get beaten badly, if they lose these, uh, some of these governor's races in the South, you know, if you have a, you know, Democratic governor in, in Georgia, for example, uh, again, in North Carolina, you know, do you, you know, do you be, begin to see then a postmortem to figure out how they go forward? But I think for them, it's not, the battle's not finished. I think there, there can be a postmortem, but I think it's more likely to take place, you know, after the governor's races two years from now. A couple of years in the future, if there is a, a, a more successful postmortem, and if, you know, Romney types, folks like Ben Sass kind of win back the party and and a lot of these Trump supporting candidates lose elections, clearly the Trump base will still be there and clearly their racism will still be very much existent. How do these folks find their electoral expression if the GOP doesn't reflect their their racism? And even if, if, if they don't find electoral expression, what happens then? How do these folks act in our civic space in our political system? I think it has to come through uh, immigration. I mean, because I think immigration is the unifier uh, because a, ma- a majority of Republicans believe immigrants benefit the country. You know, they, you know, they weren't wholly supportive, you know, of, of what he was doing on immigration. And I think it's in part, you know, why Trump turned away from it politically. He used it in the midterms uh, and it, did, it backfired, didn't succeed. Uh, and he moved from immigration to race, you know, black, white battles. Um, and defunding the police. Um, but that allowed America to become more pro-immigration. Um, and I, I think the road back is through immigration and embracing America as a diverse country. Uh, and I think that's the issue. Obviously, there'll have to be a return to support for democracy and the rule of law and the constitution. Um, you know, but the bigger question is we have a changing America. And, and I think the route back is to embrace America as an immigrant country. Do you have any closing thoughts? That was my closing thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, this is, look, when I, look, when I looked at what happened uh, in 16, uh, I, was, I was eager to write the book because I believe that Trump was the, kind of the last throw of a Republican party, of a Tea Party evangelical observant party trying to hold off against a new America. Um, and I didn't think it could be done again, uh, which he did, but he also did it against uh, and ultimately lost <laughs> uh, the election. Uh, but it was a much harder battle, um, you know, top to bottom uh, at a much higher price. And, but the odds grow even harder for them, uh, you know, in the future. But I will never be sanguine again. I, you know, I will always be careful to pay attention to how imaginative they can be. Uh, in stoking the racism and nationalism um, that gave them their votes. Stanley Greenberg is a polling advisor and author most recently of R.I.P. GOP, How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. You can read his latest thinking on Trump's electoral race war at The American Prospect. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. The confirmation of Lloyd Austin as Secretary of Defense offers new hope that the Biden administration will make good 
on an Obama-era promise to close the detention center at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. In written answers to questions from the Senate Armed Forces Committee, Austin clearly stated his belief that it is time for Guantanamo to close its doors and that he understands the Biden-Harris administration will seek to do so. But even if that happens, more will have to be done to repair the damage done by Guantanamo that reaches far beyond the confines of individual cells. Sue Goodwin has more. When it first opened 19 years ago this month, the prison at Guantanamo Bay quickly became a symbol of American willingness to ignore human rights in the name of the so-called War on Terror, launched by President George W. Bush in response to the 9-11 attacks. Forty men remain in prison there, all are Muslim, and most are being held without charge or trial, some for nearly two decades now. Just two weeks ago, a UN team of human rights experts called on the incoming Biden administration to immediately close the facility for what they call cruel and inhumane conditions of imprisonment. Quote, Guantanamo is a place of arbitrariness and abuse, a site where torture and ill treatment was rampant and remains institutionalized, where the rule of law is effectively suspended, and where justice is denied, unquote. Karen J. Greenberg is director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. She is the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First Hundred Days, and more recently, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And she says... Putting an end to those abuses is reason enough to close the detention center, but not the only reason. It's a human rights concern, it's a moral concern, but it's also about the United States returning to the idea that we are a country of the rule of law and that we honor the traditions we have. And if we find something that's too difficult or complex or politically challenging to address, the idea is not to say that we won't deal with it because we can't. The idea that we couldn't deal with this and can't deal with has vast implications beyond the human rights implications. And while human rights implications are at the heart of it, it's part of a, a very large and sustained conversation that we need to get to the next stage of. In a piece titled, We're Living in Guantanamo's Shadow, posted last year to The Nation and Tom's Dispatch, Karen Greenberg and co-author Joshua Dreytel wrote about eight ways, quote, the toxic policies of that offshore facility have contaminated American institutions as well as our laws and customs, close quote. The first they write about is indefinite detention, the practice of holding individuals without charge or trial. And Karen Greenberg says it has to stop. We can't just round people up and not charge them and not have a a reason to detain them and just say we're detaining you because we think you're dangerous. And as Greenberg explains, it's an alarming example of how what's acceptable at Guantanamo has become acceptable beyond. To your point about how this bleeds out into other things, we have had a system of indefinite detention at the border in this country for the past few years. We are detaining people without charging them, and we are detaining people without a a schedule of how they're going to be heard, adjudicated, etc. And so you don't have to draw a direct line to say that 
because we crossed the line in Guantanamo um, and it happened elsewhere, oh, you can't connect them. You, you can connect them. You can connect them because once it's introduced into the fabric of conversation, into the fabric of possibility, it's there. And that is the worry about a whole range of things that happened with Guantanamo. Another way that Guantanamo is making its mark on legal norms is what Greenberg and Dreitel describe in their article last year as the development of a new legal language for the purpose of bypassing the law. Prisoners held at Guantanamo are considered enemy combatants. It's an extraordinary legal status developed by the administration of George W. Bush, and it means the detainees would be immune to existing laws, American or international, pertaining to prisoners of war. This is a category that was created for use in the War on Terror. We used it to take people out of both the Uniform Code of Military Justice rules and out of the rules of the criminal justice system to say, look, the rules aren't going to apply. It was a category which essentially meant the rules don't apply. We can't have a category of individuals for whom the laws do not apply, whether they're citizens or people in U.S. territory or what. We can't have that. And once again, it doesn't stop with Guantanamo. After questions were raised about the legality of the January 2020 drone killing of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani in Iraq, a Trump administration official told CNN the move was vetted by three different sets of lawyers from the White House, DOJ, and DOD, and that all three sets of lawyers deemed the strike was lawful, in part because Soleimani was deemed an enemy combatant and in the process of planning specific attacks on the U.S. and allied personnel and citizens. In their piece last year, Greenberg and Dreitel outline other ways Guantanamo is being mirrored in other political and policy arenas, including a disregard for international law and treaties and a sense of immunity from the law. Sound familiar? Taking all of that into account, Karen Greenberg wrote a piece for the American Prospect after it became clear that Biden had won the election. She outlined the executive orders she would like to see him take action on. A first executive order would announce that Guantanamo is closing. A second would address any future legal proceedings. It would halt the military commissions, which Greenberg says have made a mockery of justice, and it would take the death penalty off the table. And once we get rid of the death penalty, then we can talk about plea deals being um, given. But right now, that does not exist as a possibility. The third executive order Greenberg wants to see would recognize the mistake of setting up Guantanamo in the first place. In doing so, Biden would declare an end to indefinite detention and denounce the violations of law, policy, and morality that have defined Guantanamo since it opened. Because Guantanamo took us down a road that until we remedy until we do that, we are not going to get off that road. It's an incalculably huge mistake in terms of the signal it sends that America can make its own rules up as it goes along and make exceptions to the Constitution and the laws. And until it becomes this prison does not exist and this was wrong, that possibility will be there for other actors who might want to use it as a place to put people outside the law. 
and also to restore America's trust in itself as a member of the nations that respect as, and a leader of the nations that respect the rule of law. But of course, it's not just respect for rule of law that's at play here. President Obama met with significant political resistance to his plan to close Guantanamo, a plan that eventually failed. But Karen Greenberg sees this moment as one of greater political possibility. I think there's political disinterest, and that is what makes it political possibility. I think Guantanamo is a relic from the past at this point. I don't think it's on people's minds. I think this could be done very procedurally, very transparently, and I don't really believe there would be that much concern for it except symbolically. I think there's a a reality factor in terms of the threats that confront the United States. Even if you look at the intelligence threats, there are bigger threats right now. And among them, by the way, are things that are very hard to control, like climate change, like COVID. And so I think it would be good to resolve this, move on, do it in a way that makes us feel safe, but that doesn't violate our fundamental structures and the rule of law. Karen J. Greenberg is director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. She is the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and more recently, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. In one of his final moves in office, Donald Trump likely worsened the world's worst humanitarian disaster. On January 10th, Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, designated the Houthi rebel group in Yemen as terrorists. That designation means any provision of material support to the Houthis, including even humanitarian aid, would be treated by the U.S. government as criminal activity. At least 80% of the population in Yemen is reliant on food aid and The U.N. says up to 5 million people will be pushed to the brink of famine in the first half of this year. In response to concerns the Biden administration exempted aid groups, the U.N., the Red Cross, and agricultural and medical exports from its designation, and is conducting a fast review. But even if the designation is pulled, the process and its politics reveal deep flaws and the way the U.S. understands terrorism. Reporter Chris Banger-Drowns has that story. Debate around the concept of domestic terrorism has grown in the wake of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. But terrorism outside U.S. borders isn't a fixed concept either. There is no fixed, firm, controlling U.S. federal government legal definition of what terrorism is. There are many different definitions in many different documents, under different statutes, under different regulations, etc. So it becomes very difficult. That's Hussein Ibish, senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. He explains that the recent Houthi designation was made possible through the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, which authorized the State Department to label foreign organizations as terrorist groups. And the State Department didn't do that for uh, over a year. And the Congress got mad and they sort of forced Albright, who was Secretary of State at the time, to put up a list. And 
it didn't really include any groups that weren't terrorist organizations in the normal meaning of the term, but it did exclude some that obviously were, particularly Irish groups and uh, some anti-Castro-Cuban groups that by any measure of the definition ought to have been on that list and were not for political reasons, for domestic political reasons. This political bias is still evident in recent years, with Sudan as an instructive example. Sudan was first labeled in 1993 as a state sponsor of terrorism for its alleged harboring of Osama bin Laden and others. Since then, the country has made significant strides. Former President Omar al-Bashir, infamous for grave human rights abuses, was deposed in 2019, arrested, and charged with a number of serious crimes. The new government distanced itself from terrorist groups. But it wasn't until Sudan normalized ties with Israel that the U.S. removed the country from its list of state sponsors of terrorism. So in other words, this designation was used as leverage over Sudan to get Sudan to do something that the American government and most American foreign policy leaders uh, thought was a good idea and good for the United States and whatnot. My point is, obviously, when you have a list like state sponsors of terrorism that is so instrumentalized, its, its value as a, not just a moral claim and its lack of moral clarity, but even its veracity, even its truth value becomes very hard to maintain. And it's been really instrumentalized from the beginning, but especially under Trump. Following this pattern, the Houthi designation has a complex political motive. The Trump administration over its last few months in power made a series of moves, including the imposition of new sanctions against Iran. The designation of the Houthis, who are backed by the Iranian government, could be seen as one piece of Trump's broader strategy to make it more difficult for Joe Biden to re-engage diplomatically with Iran. I'm sure that's at least 80%, 70% of the motivation here. And it's not that the Houthis aren't necessarily deserving of the terrorism label. Ibish simply doesn't think the designation will be effective. You can make the case for calling the Houthis a terrorist organization. I don't think that's difficult at all. I think the question is, why would you do this now under the current circumstances? And there, I think the cynicism, the politicization and the foreign policy malevolence becomes really clear. And I just don't buy the idea that this is going to help Saudi Arabia get out of Yemen, which is the unstated theory behind it. I I don't think it's true. Ibish describes what he thinks Mike Pompeo's frame of mind was in making the Houthi designation to view Yemen through the lens of Iran, to treat the Houthis as simply a proxy of Iran, and to think that progress uh, with Iran on nuclear weapons and progress between the Houthis and the Saudis in Yemen could have a kind of mutually reinforcing effect and that that could provoke a more conciliatory approach between the United States and Iran. And that's not something that the former administration would want the current administration to do. So by ratcheting up tensions with Iran, with the Houthis, with China, it makes it much harder to uh, you know, come to terms. And I think that's the idea here. Biden has two big relationships to mend in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Iran, but each requires a different approach. Ibish says the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States is one of strategic necessity. While the U.S. itself isn't dependent on energy reserves from the Gulf, much of the world is. 
So, if the U.S. seeks to maintain its position as a global power, then it must maintain a position in the Middle East. Ibish says long-term goals of Iran and the United States don't appear to be aligned, leaving Saudi Arabia as the only viable partner in the region. In turn, Saudi Arabia has its existential security needs met by the United States. So we're stuck together. If it's a bad marriage, it's also one in which divorce is not really an option, in my view. And so at that point, you have to then navigate the real need to maintain the relationship with the need to fix it, right? We need a reset after Trump. We need to reset so much after Trump. It's not even funny. One of the things we need to reset is the relationship with Saudi Arabia. And a core part of that reset is getting Yemen right. Biden has signaled a desire to hold the Saudi government to account for its human rights abuses, but must do so without disrupting the Saudi desire to extricate itself from Yemen. Biden can uh, chew gum and walk at the same time. It's just that he's going to have to chew gum carefully anyway, and he's going to have to walk carefully. But even if the Houthi terrorist designation is lifted, which would ease the humanitarian situation on the ground and alleviate a source of political tension in the region, our designation system is still broken. Uh, in my view, it would be much wiser if, as a matter of law and policy, we stop trying to call people terrorists or organizations terrorists, as if it were an ontological status, right? As if there were regular people or normal organizations, and then terrorists, you know, who are like, I don't know, cows or flies or birds or something. You know, that, that's, that's not, I think, the reality. So it's not just that a clear definition of terrorism is required, but our understanding of what terrorism is and who terrorists are needs to be fundamentally reimagined. I think it's much better, rather than thinking of terrorism as a noun, as a, as a definitional noun, as a descriptive noun, which I don't think it usually is, it would be much better to think of it as a verb or an adjective. This is a terrorist act. This is, an, you know, th this action was terrorism. This this what this group has been doing is terrorism, right? And that's very different than saying this group is terrorist. You see what I mean? Uh, because uh, if we do it that way, then at least we know what we're talking about. We know why we're using the word and we make it a lot easier. I think we ultimately end up incentivizing entities not to engage in terrorism. If we talk in terms of terrorist acts and terrorism as a practice, as a verb. Hussein Ibish is senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. In this new administration, many are demanding new ways of approaching policing and accountability. This month alone, it was ruled that officers who shot Tamir Rice and Jacob Blake would receive no charges. Before that, in 2020, it was ruled that no officer would be charged for the murder of Breonna Taylor. 
and even a few months before that, in St. Louis, a prosecutor said no charges would be filed against the former cop who shot Michael Brown. So, even as movements against police brutality are growing, why aren't officers being held accountable? Amara Evering reports. As this new administration settles into a freshly cleaned White House, many Americans continue to live in gross systems and cycles of injustice, like Jacob Blake, who was actually one of the attendees at last week's inauguration. Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by Officer Rustin Shesky last summer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It was only a couple of weeks before the inauguration that Blake found out that the officer who has paralyzed him will receive no charges. And this wasn't the only officer to get off with no charges just this month. The U.S. Department of Justice revealed that they would not charge any officers involved in the fatal shooting of Tamir Rice, a black 12-year-old boy who was shot in Cleveland, Ohio in 2014. So in these cases, and others where many of us have seen videos of these shootings with our own eyes, why aren't police officers getting charged for what is seen as obvious misconduct? I asked Kate Levine, associate professor at the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law. She told me that these instances of violence are not only common, but oftentimes it's completely legal. Officers are, in fact, following the law or following policy, right? They aren't violating the law. And we see these high salience cases of violence, but police commit violence every single day against hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of people. And it's literally completely legal. It's encouraged. The law gives police officers the ability to individually judge whether they feel they're under threat. And if they claim they are, force against civilians is permissible. That's always going to be the claim if it's possible, right? That's the rule. Police can use deadly force if they're in fear for their life. So that's will always be what the reason that they're not going to be prosecuted in these cases. So that means if a case rests on whether or not a police officer felt threatened and the officer says, yes, I did in fact feel threatened, well, case closed. Often the words of a police officer holds more weight and credibility in cases than anyone else's, and sometimes even evidence. Their word is given tremendous credibility. If you've ever been to a suppression hearing where a defendant says a police officer violated the Constitution and the police officer says they didn't, the police always win. Judges, juries, and prosecutors, and maybe even some defense attorneys without realizing it, are just going to assume what the police say is true. It is going to be really hard for a prosecutor to prove a case because even if there are other witnesses, they're not going to be believed as much as the police. But it's not only the law, coupled with the immense credibility we give to police officers, it's also the close relationship prosecutors have with police departments that makes it hard to charge officers. So prosecutors work hand in hand with the police. They have a very close relationship with the police. More than that, they rely on the police to make every single one of their cases, right? Many cases, I might say most criminal cases, are literally a police officer saying X person did this, and that's the whole proof. The police and their ability to help prosecutors is the way prosecutors make cases. And in most prosecutors' offices, the way you advance is by getting guilty verdicts. So yes, police often receive special treatment from prosecutors, but it doesn't stop there. 
Police in most jurisdictions have special protections known as the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights. This protects officers from the very tactics that they use to get confessions and interrogations. When a normal and ordinary criminal suspect is being interrogated, they're protected by the Constitution, which offers extremely little protection. So, for instance, police can and regularly do when they're interrogating a suspect. They lie to them. They threaten them. They, you know, we think about the Central Park Five. They tell children, you can go home to your mother if you confess, right? Like obvious, blatant lies. They interrogate people for very long periods of time. They don't allow them to sleep or eat or use the restroom for hours and hours and hours. This is the playbook. This is how police get people to confess. They make them uncomfortable and make them think there's no other way out, right? This is like 101 of police interrogation. Okay. All of those things are off the table when it comes to police officers. But what do these special protections look like for police? They have to be given sort of bathroom breaks, time to sleep, food. They can't be lied to. They have to know what the charges are against them. They can't be induced by promises. There's one other, and I think this has gotten some attention. In some states and jurisdictions, police get like 24 hours to up to 10 days before they can be questioned. And the problem with that is, of course, we've seen so many times that police officers circle the wagons, get their stories together, right? So they all end up telling the same story that isn't true. And they have tons of time to do that. And that can be very, very problematic. So wouldn't it make sense to treat police officers like everyone else? Kate Levine had a different perspective. I'd like to just flip that quickly because I think it's important to ask actually, why aren't normal cases given the same care and attention that police cases are given? Because the minute someone is charged with a crime, they enter the criminal legal system, which wreaks all sorts of havoc on their lives, on their families' lives, on their communities' lives. Well, why aren't we all afforded the same protections that are in the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights? Why aren't our cases given the same meticulous review as police cases? The truth is, policing as an institution wasn't established to reinforce equality. This is where the history comes in, right? I mean, the police were developed to basically replace slave patrols in the South and to put down organized labor protests in the North. Their whole professional history is to control and subjugate marginalized populations. So how do we remedy an institution that didn't have our best interest then and doesn't have our best interest now? For Levine, she believes that this issue is far bigger than just putting cops in jail. For her, it means completely rethinking policing as a whole. How do you get justice for a person being gunned down by the state? Like, how do you get justice? And so my focus, as far as justice and accountability goes, is on stopping the narrative that the police are going to protect us and on reducing contact with them. On the Upper East Side of Manhattan, a wealthy area of Manhattan, there is already police abolition, right? There's no police there. People just go about their day. There's no police, right? The reduction of police contact with civilians is the surest way to stop people being harmed by the police. And even for people who think, well, we need the police to protect us from violent people, the police are doing so much more than intervening in violent situations, as we see from all these deaths, but as we can see every day from the hundreds of thousands of people who were stopped and frisked, and the many of whom were let go because they were doing nothing criminal. Kate Levine, associate professor of law at the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law, 
For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. In honor of those who were victims of police brutality in 2020, and even in this first month of 2021, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Jericho Brown reads his poem, Bullet Points. Bullet Points. I will not shoot myself in the head, and I will not shoot myself in the back, and I will not hang myself with a trash bag. And if I do, I promise you, I will not do it in a police car while handcuffed or in the jail cell of a town I only know the name of because I have to drive through it to get home. Yes, I may be at risk, but I promise you, I trust the maggots who live beneath the floorboards of my house to do what they must to any carcass, more than I trust an officer of the law of the land to shut my eyes like a man of God might, or to cover me with a sheet so clean my mother could have used it to tuck me in. When I kill me, I will do it the same way most Americans do. I promise you, cigarette smoke or a piece of meat on which I choke, or so broke I freeze in one of these winters we keep calling worst. I promise if you hear of me dead anywhere near a cop, then that cop killed me. He took me from us and left my body, which is, no matter what we've been taught, greater than the settlement a city can pay a mother to stop crying and more beautiful than the new bullet fished from the folds of my brain. Pulitzer Prize winner, Jericho Brown. Poet Amanda Gorman became an overnight sensation with her rendering of The Hill We Climb at the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on Wednesday. Her books have become bestsellers, even the ones that have yet to be published. Just 22 years old, she has been a star performer for several years. Here, she recites her poem, 24 Hours of Reality, Earthrise, with an orchestra recorded two years ago. On Christmas Eve, 1968, Astronaut Bill Anders snapped a photo of the Earth as Apollo 8 orbited the moon. Those three guys were surprised to see from their eyes a planet looked like an Earth rise, a blue orb hovering over the moon's gray horizon with deep oceans and silver skies. It was our world's first glance at itself, our first chance to see a shared reality, a declared stance and a commonality, a glimpse into our planet's mirror. And as threats drew nearer, our own urgency, became clearer as we realized that we hold nothing dearer than this floating body we all call home. We've known that we're caught in the throes of climactic changes some say will just go away while some simply pray to survive another day. For it is the obscure, the oppressed, the poor who when the disaster is declared done still suffer more than anyone. Climate change is the single greatest challenge of 
our time. Of this, you're certainly aware. It's saddening, but I cannot spare you from knowing an inconvenient fact because it's getting the facts straight that gets us to act and not to wait. So I tell you this not to scare you, but to prepare you, to dare you to dream a different reality where despite disparities, we all care to protect this world, this riddled blue marvel, this little true marvel to master the verve and the nerve to see how we can serve our planets. You don't need to be a politician to make it your mission to conserve, to protect, to preserve that one and only home that is ours to use your unique power to give next generations the planet they deserve. We are demonstrating, creating, advocating. We heed this inconvenient truth because we need to be anything but lenient with the future of our youth. And while this is a training and sustaining the future of our planet, there is no rehearsal. The time is now, 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 because the reversal of harm and protection of a future so universal should be anything but controversial. So, Earth, pale blue dots we will fail you not just as we chose to go to the moon we know it's never too soon to choose hope we choose to do more than cope with climate change we choose to end it we refuse to lose we do this and more not because it's very easy or nice but because it is necessary because with every dawn we carry the weight of the fates of this celestial body orbiting a star and as heavy as the weight sounded it doesn't hold us down but it keeps us grounded steady ready because an environmental movement of this size is simply another form of an earth rise to see it close your eyes visualize that all of us in this room and outside of these walls or in these halls, all of us change makers are in a spacecraft floating like a silver raft in space and we see the face of a planet anew. We relish the view, we witness its round green and brilliant blue which inspires us to ask deeply, wholly, what can we do? Open your eyes, know the future of this wise planet is right in sight, right in all of us. Trust this earth uprising, all of us bring light to exciting solutions never tried before, for it is our hope that implores us at our uncompromising core to keep rising up for an earth more than worth fighting for. Henry Lewis Aaron nicknamed Hammer, or Hammerin' Hank, a professional baseball right fielder who played 23 seasons in the major leagues. From 1954 through 1976, joined his ancestors on Friday. He is best remembered for the moment in 1974, playing for the Atlanta Braves when Aaron stared down race hate and even death threats. That was when he, a black man from Alabama, hit his famous 715th home run, surpassing the record of 714 hit by George Herman Ruth Jr., the Bambino, the immortal Babe Ruth. The Babe's record had stood since 1935. Hall of Fame announcer Vin Scully was at the microphone and made the call as the L.A. Dodgers faced the Braves with Aaron at the plate. 
Once again, a standing ovation for Henry Aaron. So the confrontation for the second time. Aaron walked in the second inning. He means the tying run at the plate now. So we'll see what Downing does. Al at the belt delivers, and he's low, ball one. And that just adds to the pressure. The crowd booing. Downing has to ignore the sound effects and stay a professional in pitches game. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. As Aaron circled the bases, the Dodgers on the infield shook his hand, and that was a memorable moment. Aaron is being mobbed by photographers. He is holding his right hand high in the air, and for the first time in a long time, that poker face of Aaron shows the tremendous strain and relief of what it must have been like to live with for the past several months. It is over. At 10 minutes after 9 in Atlanta, Georgia, Henry Aaron has eclipsed the mark set by Babe Ruth. So Henry and the Babe, the two greatest home run hitters that have ever lived. And it's a marvelous, wonderful, enjoyable moment here in Atlanta as he becomes the greatest home run hitter in the history of baseball. Hank Aaron retired in 1976 with a total of 755 homers. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger-Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe. Keep your social distance. Mask up. And thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Mm-hmm.